On July 9th, 2001, in Cresco, Iowa, Angela Hike fails to show up for her shift at the grocery store where she works. Co-workers call her and get no answer. The family are contacted and they become concerned as well. Family and friends call police and report Angela missing. It's not like her to not show up for work or not answer the door or the phone. So Officer Kimberly Orth arrives at her home and she notices through the window that the, the, there are candles burning in the living room. She knows Angela. This is a small town. And Kimberly Orth knows that Angela would never have left the house with candles burning. It's almost as if she ran out quickly. This concerns Officer Orth. She calls for backup. Angela's father arrives at the home and he unlocks the door for police. They go in and Kimberly Orth, Officer Kimberly Orth, says that she could feel bad energy as soon as she entered the home. Angela's purse is there, as well as her makeup. And there are even dishes in the sink. There is no sign of Angela or Ashley, her eight-year-old daughter. There are no signs of a struggle, nor is there any blood or signs of a forced entry. Hi, Curious Listener. I'm your host, Michelle O'Dell. Welcome to Corn-Fed Killer. As aforementioned, we are in Iowa in night, or I'm sorry, in July of 2001. So detectives are in the home and they find her date book and her diary and bag them as evidence. Angela's keys are not there and neither is her car. So a bolo or a be on the lookout is sent out for her car. Officers talk to neighbors, asking them if they saw anything or heard anything. And they also inquire about the last time anyone saw Angela or her daughter, Ashley. One of the neighbors says that he saw a woman who looked like Angie backing the car into the garage that very morning. And he thought it was odd because she never kept it in the garage. But police know that it could not have been Angie because the car is not there. Next, police go to Angela's ex, Bert Lucas. Bert is Ashley's father, and they ask him some questions about Angela. He says he talked to Angela that Sunday morning and she said that she was going to go tubing with her friend Lisa. She was going to take Ashley with her and the three of them were going to go tubing together. Now he says Sunday morning so that would have been the day prior. Okay so she is found on a Monday when she doesn't show up for work. Alrighty. So he goes on to tell the police that he and Angie had met when she was just out of high school. And Bert now, he is 18 years older than her. And he says, you know, pretty early on in the relationship, they had Ashley and the relationship didn't work out. But he tells police that he and Angie got along just fine. 
They were still friends. He still cared about her. And he says that he and Ashley, his daughter, were really close and that he saw her every weekend. Police note that he's obviously distraught when he learns of the disappearance. He says he was at a bar on Sunday night. Detective Orth next speaks to Lisa Barnes. She's the one that Bert says Angie and his daughter Ashley went tubing with. She also works at the grocery store with Angela. Lisa tells police that she did, in fact, go tubing with Ashley and Angie. And she says that after they went tubing, she dropped Angie and Ashley off at home at about 5.30. Lisa says that Angie told her she needed a vacation. And Officer Orth thought that was kind of a weird thing to say. And she also thought that her attitude was odd. She didn't seem very concerned at all. Officer Orth noted that she was even flippant about the whole, whole thing. Like, it's no big deal that she's missing and that her daughter is missing. Seems very odd. Officer Orth decides to go to the bar that Bert claimed to be at on that Sunday night. The bartender and several patrons at the bar confirm that Bert was indeed there. Officer Orth also confirms with Bert's employer that Bert was at work on time the next morning at 4.30 a.m. So Bert obviously doesn't know anything about the whereabouts of his daughter Ashley or his ex Angela. The next morning on July 10th, 2001, Flyers are created and posted everywhere. They are even given to truckers to post nationwide. Bert Lucas speaks to the media, pleading for the return of his daughter and Angela. Police conduct searches of rivers, creeks, and the surrounding areas. There is no sign of Angela or Ashley anywhere. A detective named Jim Wirtz a veteran detective, gets involved with the case. He becomes like Orth's partner, and they go to the local bank where Angie has an account, and they pull her financial records for the past couple of months. They do not find anything suspicious in her financials at all. She doesn't seem to, you know, have trouble balancing her accounts. She doesn't seem to owe anybody a lot of money. She's not, you know, overdrawn. It's a, you know, pretty normal deposit my paycheck, pay my bills type situation there. So nothing odd. They put a stop on her account so that the bank can alert the police if anyone tries to write a check or use her, her debit card or try to gain access to her account in any way. Detectives decide they're going to go back to the grocery store and talk to the manager, to the boss of Angela and of Lisa, because remember, Lisa works there as well. They check up on Lisa Barnes and confirm that she was at work at 6 a.m. that Monday morning at the time that the neighbor claimed to have seen someone backing Angela's car into the garage. So Lisa can't be the woman that the neighbor saw. The community, meanwhile, is devastated. Like I said, it's a small town. In fact, the prosecutor's son went to first grade with Ashley Lucas. So 
you know, it was that kind of thing where there was one elementary school and all the kids went to school together through middle school, through high school, and so on. The kind of town where people often stayed after high school. A real small town, you know, everybody knows everybody kind of situation. Angela was well-liked around town. She and her daughter regularly attended a local church and were active and well-liked there as well. And of course, she knew a lot of the locals through her job at the grocery store. So why would Angela just leave without telling anyone? Did someone do something to them? And if so, why? Angela didn't seem to have any enemies. So who would have done something to them? It's quite a quandary for police. Officer Orth decides she's going to look through Angie's diary and her date book to kind of see if there's anything that anywhere she could have gone or anyone she could have seen that they don't know about already. And she does find something interesting. In the diary, Angela writes about meeting a carny. She called him, quote, back rub clay, end quote, end quote. They bring Lisa in, back in, and Lisa says, yeah, you know, I recognize that as her diary. That's her handwriting. And they said, well, you know, did you know about this back rub clay? And Lisa says, yeah, I knew she went out with him that Saturday night. You know, she mentioned it on Sunday. And so they ask her, well, how come you didn't tell us anything about it? And Lisa said she didn't think it was important. She just saw him that one time on Saturday. You know, she didn't think, you know, it was anybody that would have known anything about Lisa, or I'm sorry, about Angela or her daughter or the disappearance. And they said, well, huh, where were you? And she says, well, on Saturday, I went to a wedding with, get this, a local police officer. Hmm, interesting. So Officer Orth, of course, follows up with the officer that took Lisa to the wedding and he says, oh, yeah, yeah, I took her to the wedding and then we went home. We're not, you know, serious or anything like that. We're not a thing. We just went as friends. Odd that he didn't volunteer that information before. I would think if you're a police officer, particularly in a small town where you are more than likely going to be investigating the case, or at least involved in some way in its investigation, it would be odd that if you knew someone who was brought in for questioning, that you wouldn't let your boss know, or your coworkers at the very least, know that you knew her, that you are connected to her in some way. It's weird. So, you know, it begs the question, does he know something? Does he know something about what happened to her? Or does he know something about Lisa? Was Lisa somehow connected to the disappearance of Angela and her daughter? Interesting. All right. So now detectives think, well, we got to find this Clay the Carney. All they have is his first name, 
they find out that he ran the tilt-a-whirl at the carnival, or in the Midwest, we usually call it a fair. And they got to talk to him because he very well could have been the last person to see Angela Hike before she disappeared. Problem was that the fair had left Howard County. Now, you know, you probably know if you're from the U.S. that the fair comes to town for a week and then it moves on to the next county. And that's how it goes summer after summer. So she decides, well, I'm going to go the 20 miles to the next county and she knows the fair's being set up there and she's going to ask some of the carnival workers if they know this clay. So she asks them, hey, do you know a man named Clay that worked, you know, the carnival? And they say, oh, yeah, we know Clay, but he left. He's not working this carnival. We don't know where he's at. She finds out that Clay has a wife, a wife named Bobby Joe. The workers tell Detective Orth that in Cresco, Clay had left on a bicycle and then came back a couple hours later in a car. He didn't have a car. He didn't own a car. He came back in a gold car. Angie had a gold car. Hmm. Suspicious. Uh -huh. They say he came back, picked up his wife, Bubba Joe, and left. And they didn't see him again after that. And haven't seen him at this place at all. So... They got to find out where he went. Five days later, they go to Clay's employer, Evans United Shows. Now, Evans United Shows is a company that employs carnival workers for many different fairs, for many different county fairs and carnivals all over the country. When they find, or they, they got to find out, you know, what they can find out about Clay. Unfortunately, because of the tendency of carnival workers to be transient, meaning that they move from place to place and often don't have permanent addresses, and, you know, they are often ex-cons, they don't find anything out about Clay and Bobby Joe. The only thing the employer has on them is their name. So the department's next step is to put out a bolo on the couple, a be on the lookout on the couple. So now we have a bolo out for the car and for the couple. On July 17th, Angela's bank calls and informs the police that someone tried to use Angie's bank card and cashed a check on her account in Kansas at a convenience store. They look at the camera footage and they see a man and a woman that match the descriptions of Clay and Bobby Joe. There is no sign of Angela or Ashley, but the couple is driving Angie's gold car. So they got to get their butts from Iowa to Kansas and see if they can find this pair, right? Cresco, Iowa, police detectives make their way to Atchison, Kansas. And they decide, 
for the best place for them to do, go is to the local police station, of course. They find out that Clay's last name is Thomas. You see, Clay Thomas is well known to Kansas police. He has quite an extensive rap sheet, even though he's only 24 years old at this point. He has charges ranging from selling marijuana to sexual misconduct and sexual battery. Furthermore, Kansas police confirm that it is indeed Clay Thomas and his wife, Bobby Joe, in the surveillance footage, footage from the convenience store. The Cresco police are informed that the couple are staying in a motel two and a half hours away in Wichita, Kansas. So off to Wichita they go. Outside of the motel, bold as brass, is Angela's gold car. Police arrest the pair of them and transport them back to Iowa. At first, Clay Thomas says that he met Angela on July 8th, spent a couple hours with her, and then dropped her off at home. When police ask him how he got Angie's car, he asks for a lawyer. So the interrogation is pretty much shut down at that point. But then he just lets it all out. He confesses to murdering Angela and her daughter, Ashley. Maybe he confesses because he's informed that Bobby Joe has sold him down the river. Or maybe he's consumed with guilt. Who knows for sure? Nobody, I suspect. But if I had to guess, I'd guess it was the former. In any event, he does confess. He tells police that he and Bobby Joe were out of money and that he met Angie at the carnival. He says they hit it off and they walked together that night over to her house and hung out. At some point that Sunday night while they were hanging out, Ashley had a bad dream. Clay says that Angie went upstairs and came down a couple minutes later, at which point Clay says that he offered Angie a back rub. Old back rub Clay, right? She lays down on the ground on her stomach, you know, on the carpet in the living room, and he starts rubbing her back. Then he says he begins strangling her from behind. Angie manages to get away, but Clay catches her and strangles her to death. Then he goes upstairs to sleeping eight-year-old Ashley's room, and he strangles her as well. Clay stays the night at that house that night. And in the morning, he takes Angela's car. Bobby Joe, like Clay, she plays innocent at first when police are questioning her. She tells police, I don't know anything. Then, they confront her with the eyewitness account of a woman, of her, backing Angie's car in. She says Clay showed up at the campground early that morning on July 9th with Angie's car. She says that he told her that he killed Angie and Ange Ashley and he threatened her, she says, 
burnt her with a cigarette and said he would kill her if she didn't help him. She backed the car in and they put Angie and little Ashley's bodies in the car. They got a shovel from Clay's mom's house in Kansas and they buried the bodies in a park. Police note that Bobby Joe actually seemed quite remorseful. She tells police where the bodies can be found. The police go to the site immediately. It is now July 18th, so just 10 days after she was murdered. Despite a thunderstorm, the police agents discovered the bodies of Angela Hike and eight-year-old Ashley Lucas. The bodies were found in shallow graves along a farm trail near Atchison State Fishing Lake. It was a wet, hot, and humid summer there, and it had been 10 days. The decomposition was accelerated. However, the bodies were confirmed, like I said, to be Angie's and Ashley's. Bert Lucas, remember Ashley's father, is informed, of course, everyone is, is informed that the bodies are found. And he, the police say, is stricken and thinks about the daughter's last moments, wondering if she called out for him. It's just heartbreaking. If you get a chance to watch the documentary on this case, and I'll put it in the show notes, of course, um, it is just heartbreaking to see this poor dad. Okay, so Clay... is a evil monster, right? He strangled this woman and her daughter for no reason, really just because he wanted the car, I guess. He said they were out of money, but he left her purse there. I guess he had the debit card though and the checkbook. So I guess that's all he needed. And he figured he would get money from a single mom and take her car, you know, dumb piece of fucking shit. All right, so this piece of shit, at the trial, he tries to claim that a childhood head injury had rendered him incapable of controlling his actions and of knowing right from wrong. So basically, he's going for the not guilty by reason of mental defect defense. His mother, Dorothy Roberge, does back up this defense and the story that he was injured in the head, she tells the court that he was in a car accident five years prior and that he suffered a head injury and other serious injuries as a result of that car accident. And she relayed that injuries from the car accident continued to plague him. She told the court that he told her that he was in pain and believed that he was going to die because of the injuries sustained in the car accident. She says that her son told her this on July 11th. 
Now we know that was only a couple days after the murder. So, you know, it would be a current pain from those injuries, if it was true, right? Likewise, she indicates to the jury that his behavior changed after the accident, that it got worse. And we do know that he had quite an extensive criminal record for such a young man. Furthermore, Dorothy Robridge testifies that her son, Clay Thomas, called her and told her one day that he was sorry. She asked him what he was sorry for, and he told her, quote, I did it. I killed them, end quote. She went on to say that Clay told her that he didn't know why it happened, that he just snapped. She also says that on July 11th, the same day that she complained of pain, or that he complained of pain, he asked to borrow a shovel. So that part of Bobby Joe's story definitely checks out. She testified that he seemed nervous when he was asking about the shovel, but he told her that he was going fishing and, she, and uh, that he wanted to dig up some worms. And she believed him. Poor Dorothy Roberge sobbed on the witness stand as she said, quote, I never raised my son to do that. He never hurt anyone but himself. I'd like to know what the devil happened. What pushed him to that point, end quote. Now, I, I do feel for her, but she's not exactly telling the truth here. He did hurt other people. Remember, he had an extensive rap sheet that included sexual misconduct, sexual assault, and in his records, he was even arrested for battery of his mother. So he did hurt other people. And I get that she's probably saying, you know, he, you know, would know, she didn't believe that he would ever murder someone. But we never do, don't we? You know, still, I can't help feeling sorry for her. I, you know, I can't even fathom what it must feel like as a mother to have raised a child who became a murderer, a cold-blooded killer of not just a woman, an adult, but a child. I mean, it's, oof, yuck. You know, it's not a position any mother would want to be in. And as a mom, I'm sure that there are feelings of guilt and, you know, the misplaced feeling of responsibility, responsibility, because that person, that murderer is your child. You know, you have a feeling of, you know, you have must have done something to made him that way. You know, and of course, none of this is Dorothy's fault, you know, not directly, you know, but as a mom, I can tell you, and if you're a mom, you know, the guilt is a constant and quite unfortunate part of the role of mom, you know. All right. So would this convince the jury, though? Would this prove that he literally didn't understand what was happening because of this car accident? Hmm. I don't know about that. Well, the jury didn't buy it. 
After just over an hour of deliberation, the jury found Clay Irwin Thomas guilty of two counts of first-degree murder. He is sentenced to two life sentences, one for each of the murders. As family members of the victims read victim impact statements in court, he showed zero emotion, nor did he show any emotion when he was sentenced. He declined to make a statement at sentencing. Bert Lucas, you remember the father of Ashley, did make a statement to the press outside the courtroom. Looking upward and clenching his fists, he said, Quote, I can sleep now, end quote. Doesn't that just rip your heart out? It does. It just rips your heart out, this poor man. What about Bobby Joe? Maybe you're wondering. As for Bobby Joe, she's not charged with any crime. Police stated that they believed that Thomas had abused her and that he had indeed threatened to kill her in order to get her to help him cover up the murders. Only Bobby Joe knows for sure if that's true, but given this bastard's past and, you know, capability of murder, I I have a tendency to believe her as well. So, I don't know. I will Oh, one more thing I almost forgot to tell you. Um later and it's not very much very, very long after he is in prison, he's actually charged while in prison with sexual assault as he tries to force, tried to force himself on another prisoner. So, you know, this, that sums it up. Basically, this motherfucker, Clay Irwin Thomas, is literally just a piece of shit. There's no doubt about it. I don't want to hear mental defect. He's a piece of turd shit. So, okay. And I will post some pictures of sweet little Ashley and Angie and of this piece of shit. Wait till you see his stupid ass face. He's got a stupid face. A face that you just want to pound, you know, a real punchable face. So you can check that out on the Instagram at Gordon Vet Killer Podcast. Um, thank you so much for listening. Until next time, curious listener. Bye. -bye.